617, respond to report of shots fired. The Coroner Talk podcast takes you behind the scenes with coroners, clinicians, and death investigators from around the world to provide training, news, and interviews from leading experts in the area of death investigation and scene management, bringing real stories and solid training together in one source. Now, here's your host, Darren Dake. Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of Coroner Talk. Again, I am so excited that you have joined me again this week. Man, 2020 is really getting off to a great start. A little snowy and cold in the Midwest, but uh, we're kind of used to that here in the Midwest. So other than that, it's fantastic. I'm getting ready to start a lot of travel. And so I'm just taking what little bit of time I have here to get prepared before the travel season starts. So I'm glad that you're joining me today. Now, we just came from January, where we spent all month talking on proper death notification, dealing with grieving families, how to communicate with grieving families, things like that. And this month, we're going to concentrate on investigating infant and child death. Now, that's not something that we all do a lot of, and so it's important to have some of that reminders. So since we just came out of January, where we talked about death notification, I want to give a special offer to only the podcast listeners. Now, this is only going to be good through the end of February 2020. So if you're listening to this later on, then I'm sure the coupon code won't work. You can try, but it might not work. But if you want to take the online course, Proper Death Notification Procedures, for $10, that's right, it's going to be $10. It's normally a $27 course. It's a it's a one-hour course. You're going to get all your credits and all that, but it's a $10 if you use this coupon code. Death Notification 10. Now, here's what you do. You can go to cornertalk.com, click on training, go to online training. You can go to the academy page and you can go to online training. Either way, we'll get you there. There's a lot of courses. You find proper death notification procedures. You enroll and register in that course. And before you check out, it says coupon code. You click on the coupon code. You enter the word, all lowercase, death notification 10. And that's what the numbers one zero. Death notification 10. And you will receive that course for $10 and get everything normal, same course, same credit, same everything, but you'll get that course for $10. Now, we're probably going to do the same thing in March following the February training on infant and child death. So uh, be looking for things like that. And this is only for podcast listeners. I'm not advertising this anywhere. It's not going to go out in an email blast. It's just if you're hearing this right now in your ears, you get to take advantage of that discount. So death notification 10, and you'll receive the the proper death notification procedure course for $10. While we're on training, I want to talk about what's coming up in March. Again, this is the 1st of February as you're hearing this, if it comes out, as you're, if you're hearing it when it comes out live. In March, we have the Medical Legal Death Investigation Classroom class here in Missouri. It's a four-day class total of 40 hours because you got 32 classroom and eight hour online. That's here in Missouri. We do it twice a year. It's the, it's the MLDI in level one. 
We also have the MDI Online Academy session beginning again in March. Also in March, we're going to be in Texarkana for a three-day advanced homicide training. And at the end of March, 1st of April, actually, April 1, 2, and 3, we're going, I'm, I'm going to be in Southern California teaching the uh, three-day medical legal death investigation class there. Lots of stuff coming up in March. So if you want to be involved in any or all of those trainings, then you need to, again, just go to the Academy page. You can find that at cornertalk.com, current class schedule, whatever. Uh, You can find their current class schedule. Go there and you can then find whatever course that you're wanting to register for and register there. So I'd love to meet you. And if you do come to the class because you've heard me on the podcast and haven't ever met me, make sure you look me up, introduce yourself. Let's talk. I really want to meet some of our listeners. I have listened, uh, met some of my listeners at some training, but I always enjoy that. So please look me up and talk to me and tell me that you heard about the training from the podcast. All right. As I mentioned today, we're going to be talking, uh, starting the series on infant and child death investigation. Now, today, I want to talk about the importance of standardized training. Why do we need to take training in infant and child death, and why is it important to be standardized? I'm going to talk about the difference between SIDS and SUDI, and we're going to talk some about communicating with family, and we're going to get we're going to kind of kick off there with those topics, and then we're going to build throughout the rest of the month on investigating certain types of infant death. We're going to talk about collecting evidence and how evidence plays a role in the infant death differently than an adult death. We're going to talk about the SUDI forms for CDC. All of that is coming up in the month of February. But today we're going to stick to the topics of standardized training, uh, SIDS versus SUDI, and how to deal with families and get the information that you want from families. So without any further delay, let's jump into those topics now. Adjust your earbuds, turn up those speakers, and hang on. It's now time for this week's featured conversation. So let's begin talking about why training on infant and child death is important. Why is it important for you to get continual education on that? Now, throughout this month, we're going to be educating you a lot. And and this it will help immensely. But... There's a lot more to it than that. Taking a course where you're actually in a classroom or an online course or something like that that really gets deep into the subject is important because, you know, a child death, they don't occur that often in each jurisdiction, which is great because none of us like to work dead babies. But when when it does occur, the officer responding or the coroner responding, it might be several months or years since they worked their last one. When it comes to police officers working different shifts and different times and things like that, it's very likely that the last time you worked an infant death has been months or years ago. Now, from the coroner side and the MDI side, then maybe you've worked one a few months ago because you'll see them all. A police officer may only see one or two in his entire career or in five years or something just because you know, they're not when he's on shift, they're not in his district, they're not in his town, they're in the county, they're, or they're in the county, not the town, or whatever, and they don't see them all. And so training and staying up to date on these practices will help to, to get you ready whenever there's one comes available. Also, 
these cases caused a lot of emotional baggage for the officer, for the coroner. These things are these things are tough. Talking, investigating infant and child death is very tough. And so preparing yourself, not only mentally, because you know what to expect, but also preparing yourself for how bad it's going to be and just know that. And so be ready for that. And having an understanding of how to work the case properly, how to go through this, the, the standardized procedures properly to work an in infant death will take a lot of stress off of you. So even though you're going to have some emotional backlash in your own mind from having to deal with the fact that it's a baby, having a systemized approach will help you uh, get through some of that a lot better. And then, of course, another reason why training is important is because ruling a child death SIDS is generally an inappropriate ruling. Now, years ago, back when I first started, SIDS was very common. Not that SIDS by definition was very common, but SIDS as a ruling was very common because if if it was a baby of a certain age sleeping in a crib and it was dead, then it was SIDS. Well, through the laws have changed and protocols have changed and now we are no differently. So we know that most infants die of a cause, not just SIDS. And so Again, knowing that and knowing how to work these cases will prevent you from just automatically calling it a SID case. And then maybe most importantly, only we can talk for the child. Mom and dad loves the child. Mom and dad would speak for him if they could. But it's our job to speak for that child and to let the world know why that child died, how that child died, and could it have been prevented or could we prevent a death of other children? So the Center for Disease Control and Prevention says that there are about 4,300 infant deaths per year without an immediate obvious cause. Now, what does that mean? Well, if they die of a car in a car accident, if they die of an obvious homicide, if they die of some childhood cancer, if they die of some birth defect, all of that are immediately known causes. What this 4,300 infants is are babies who die with no immediate known cause. So it's our job as investigators to find the cause of death for that baby and then to rule the manner with that. That's our job because we can't have 4,300 plus infants die without knowing why. Now, one of the critical aspects when we, when we get into looking at uh, the very fine details of the evidence and the investigation of an infant death. One thing to keep in mind as we go through that this month is there's a critical difference in children than an adult. And of course, I hear this collective sigh of duh out there, but hear me out. In the way we do the investigation has to be done differently, okay? Children are not small adults. Now, they may have Two kidneys, two lungs, a heart, they may have one brain, two eyes, you know, ten fingers, ten toes, a couple of arms and legs. That that may be true. And they may be they may look physically uh, like a human being, um, but they're not they're not just small adults, okay? They are physically different in a lot of ways. Uh, and of course, what may kill them won't kill us, okay? Uh, 
we can withstand things that an infant cannot withstand. And so you can't go into these cases thinking that they're that they're small adults. Well, that couldn't have killed a child because it wouldn't kill me. Well, that's that's really not appropriate. Lots of things can kill babies that won't kill us. So we have to understand that they are not small adults. And then when it comes to investigation side, in adult cases, a lot of times we start the investigation from a perspective of what and who. What happened? Who did it? We, we go in thinking about homicide, okay? And we want to look at what happened and who did it. But in a child death, we really need to be looking at it in terms of why and how. Why and how? Why did this baby die and how did this baby die? So remember that in, in investigations are not conducted based upon what the manner is assumed to be, but rather most appropriate determination of cause and manner of death is based upon a full interdisciplinary investigation, meaning multiple people coming together with multiple resources and determining the cause and manner of that death. So regardless of the age of the child, okay, they don't, children don't live in a vacuum. They, they exist in a system. We all exist in the same system and that entire system must be taken into account during the investigation. So you might have the DFS workers, the church leaders, the, the babysitters, the parents, the caregivers, aunts, uncles, whoever may be involved in that child uh, may be coming together to answer questions about this, about this child death. Okay. See, most children die of accident or disease. Most children under the age of three die of accident or disease. Very few of them are murdered. And none of them that I know of have ever committed suicide. So if you approach an infant death as a homicide, and I know us as investigators, we always say approach every death as a homicide and then it'll work itself out in the end. All right, I, I agree. I even teach that. I understand the concept. But when you're dealing with a child, an infant especially, knowing that the majority of cases in the United States of infant death is accident or disease, then we should approach that death as why and how. Why did this child die? How did it die? And through that investigation, if we have a set of standard protocols to investigate by, if there's a homicide, it will surface. We won't miss it. It will surface. But investigating an infant death as a homicide right from the beginning, then you can alienate the parents. You can alienate a lot of people. Now, I'm not suggesting that we don't use caution, and I'm not suggesting that we don't go into these things with our eyes wide open. But we need to understand our approach is a lot different when it comes to children than with adults, when talking to witnesses and things like that. When a homicide is assumed early on, before all the facts are established, then it's very common for details for determining cause and manner are not gathered because we're assuming it's a homicide. So now we start finding reasons why this child, um, how this child was killed and who killed him. 
rather than find out the facts of actually why the child died. Okay, it's it's, it's a different aspect. So keep just keep that in mind as uh, as you go through not only this uh, this month but also if you have a infant death that you have to address. So let's talk for a minute about SIDS versus SUDI. And SUDI, of course, is what we uh, refer to most infant death now. Now, keep this in mind. No investigator, and includes you listening right now, will ever in your career conduct a SIDS investigation. Let me say that again. You will never be involved in conducting a SIDS investigation because SIDS has to be a ruling of exclusion, okay? What you will do, however, is conduct a very thorough and complete investigation into the death of that child, okay? And if they come up with no medical findings, no criminal findings, no environmental findings, then it may in fact be ruled a SIDS. But that is way down the road from when that child first dies, you're not working a SIDS case. You're working an infant death. If it turns out to be SIDS later, that may be, but that has to be after everything else is exhausted, okay? Years ago, like I said earlier, it was thrown around. But it's very, very rare if we now that we actually investigate cases. In fact, the, the statistics show that only one in every 1,000 babies that are born will die of actual SIDS. Now, hear that again. One in every 1,000 births. Now, in 2018, uh, that's they don't have 2019 statistics done yet. So in 2018, 3.7 million babies were born in the United States. Wow. 3.7 million babies were born in the United States. And of those, one in every thousand will die with no known cause, and we will end up putting a SIDS identifier to it. Now, in non-white babies, now that's in white babies, in non-white babies, it's one in every, and I'm sorry, it's 11 in every thousand. Okay? 11 in every thousand births in non-white babies. Now, I don't know why that statistic is different. It could be cultural. It, it could be hereditary. It, it could be based upon race and gender, um, or I'm sorry, race and genes, DNA, things like that, not gender. Um, but, but why, I don't know. However, one in 1,000 white babies die, and 11 in 1,000 non-white babies die of SIDS in America every year. Now, between male and female, Males die at a three to two ratio. So males die a lot more than female babies. And then 85% of those SIDS cases are from birth to six months. So these are just cases that we have not gotten any conclusion on. No environmental factors, no medical findings, no criminal findings. There's nothing that says how this baby died and why this baby died. That's a SIDS case. But they are fairly rare. It used to be very popular because we would just say, well, the baby died of SIDS, and yet that's not really the case. Okay, so let's talk about some differences between SIDS, SUDI, and this SUID. There's SUDI, SUIDI. There's all the different acronyms. So, but SIDS is 
SIDS, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. And again, it's a ruling of exclusion after all other evidence found nothing. Then you got SUDI, which is Sudden Unexplained Unexpected Death in Infancy. Now, this refers to what might be a SIDS case through the criteria of SIDS, meaning nothing is found. But because of your investigations, there are risk factors discovered such as unsafe sleeping conditions, um, maybe without proof of, of asphyxiation, but it certainly was possible. Uh, the, the baby had a lot of cat hair on its chest. There's a cow's cat living in the home. Could this cat have smothered this baby? We can't prove it, but it's unexplained, unexpected. It's not a SIDS because there are risk factors. There are probabilities, okay? And then SUD or, or SUID or SUIDI, sudden unexplained infant death investigation or infant death, you got to explain it, okay? It, you've got to do everything you can to explain why and how that baby died. Again, if there's nothing, then it sits. If there are risk factors, environmental factors, evidence found that it could possibly be this, they were. It was a co-sleeping situation. You cannot call a co-sleeping death SIDS because there are too many risk factors. Most likely, it is caused from the dangers associated with co-sleeping, not from SIDS. So you can't rule it SIDS. It's just sudden, unexplained, unexpected death in infancy. So a while ago, I talked just a little bit about this multidisciplinary approach. Now, I want I want to park here just for a minute. There are a lot of these programs established throughout the country in different ways. I know some states, there's a team of people that look at all deaths in the state well after the death has been just, you know, closed, the investigation been closed, and it's made up of some nurses and some doctors and maybe an investigator, things like that, and they just review these cases. But then there are other states that actually require that there be a, fat, a child fatality review panel in place and before a death certificate is signed, before uh, it is completely disposed of, then this team, this panel must meet and they must discuss the case and decide on the final ruling. And then a lot of, then all that information is reported to the state. Okay. Um, it's a review. It reviews the death of the child and identify trends and fatalities. It will help that area, that state, determine if there are a lot of kids dying of a certain age, uh, of a certain town, uh, on a certain playground, if they're of certain ages. There's a lot that can be done. Plus, when you come together with a, multi a multidisciplinary approach, so you have generally the prosecutor or someone from the prosecutor's office, the police agency, and this is what I'm familiar with, the police agency where the death occurred, the jurisdiction, county, city, whatever. You're going to have the coroner, you're going to have the, the investigators that were there, you're going to have any paramedics that showed up, police officers that showed up, was DFS involved, was there a hotline made, have the, is there any past calls about this residence, uh, do, do we need, did it happen at a daycare center, do we need other people there, uh, what other people do we need in this meeting? So everybody comes together, 
and we discuss this case. And there's a set of questions that has to be answered that, that are state-mandated questions. And these questions will help the team determine whether or not there is should be any charges filed against the parents or the caregiver or if it is if it hasn't already been obvious. Now it might have already been obvious. There may have already been an arrest made and this review panel is after the arrest. But it is something that looks at the case entirely by everybody's perspective. And it gives a lot of answers. And so this multi multidisciplinary approach is important. Even at its minimal, even if you don't have a established protocol in your state, having you as the police officer involved with the coroner, the MDI, all of you involved together, decide whether you're going to end up ruling this case accident or uh, homicide or disease or something because just like I talk about in suicide cases, you really want to make sure that everyone has looked at it and everybody's in agreement. So the coroner does the does the all the exam with the body. Uh, there's an autopsy done. All the information is gathered from that. Then we have a cause. Now, not necessarily a manner yet. We have a cause, and the police officers are involved. They investigated the case as well. They talked to parents as well. Everybody should come together, even if it's informally, in a room and say. Here's what we have, you know, we're going to agree that this was X. And everybody in the room agree. If they don't agree, then it needs to be an undetermined manner. Okay, you don't want somebody out there is like, no, no, that, that them, parents, them parents murdered their baby, but that coroner, he's so stupid, he just ruled it an accident. Everybody needs to agree on the manner or call it undetermined. And that solves a lot of problems, plus... It lets the parents and the community and everybody know that, hey, they're looking at this more, for more than one set of eyes and they're really making a good determination. But let me give you some cautions on using this team approach. And this, this can be a problem sometimes. If the people involved in the team lets their egos get out of control, okay? Egos can run high when boundaries are crossed. And everybody has a job to do. And I, and I say this in a lot of trainings. You may, if you've ever been to one of my trainings, you may have heard this. Everybody needs to stay in their own mud puddle. The police officers stay in their mud puddle. The coroner, MDI, stay in their mud puddle. Uh, DHS, DFS, family services, whatever you call them, they stay in their mud puddle. And together, we'll stomp out a pond to fish in. But if we just start jumping inside of each other's mud puddles, all we do is make a mess. Right. So police stay in your lane. Coroner stay in your lane. Now, that doesn't mean we don't share information. That doesn't mean we don't talk and communicate and share information. But let your egos, number one, stay out of somebody else's business. But number two, realize the most important thing is that baby, not your ego. So if you know some information, share it with the coroner, share it with the, the, the police officer. Make sure that 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 information, everybody knows the same things. OK. All agencies involved should work for a common conclusion, and that is what happened. Because, again, no factual conclusion can be made without everyone knowing all the evidence and everything being laid out on the table, so to speak, so everybody has the same information. That is the only way an actual, true, and factual determination can be made in that death. So when you get together with with this approach, there are some things you're going to need. 
you need to make sure you have everything about the scene, the time of day, the location, any factors about the scene. You need to have all the statements together from any witnesses or, or anybody that you talk to in investigation, all the history, like child abuse hotline calls or any history in the home, any medical histories, uh, genetic histories with parents, things like that. All the pathology reports, all the toxicology reports, and then all the agency cooperations come to cooperating, coming together with their reports. And there could be other things you might need as well. But those specifically are the things you're going to have to have to come together to try to make that final decision. So let's switch gears here just a minute. I want to talk about the emotion side of when a child dies. Uh, You know, it's horrific. Let's just, let's just face that. It's horrific and nothing will ever prepare you for it. It is a horrible, horrible situation. As investigators though, we owe the child our best professional investigation, okay, to get to the truth as to why that child died. Now, our emotions should not get in the way, but sometimes our emotions will surface. You know, if you're in a situation where dealing with a family, a tear wells up in your eye, that is human. That is not unprofessional. Now, if you're on the floor uh, crying and bawling and in a fetal position to where you can't even do your job, that's a little different. I'm not talking about that. But we're still human. And you showing emotion is not a bad thing, okay? Uh, you know, you it's appropriate times and things like that. But again, you're dealing with a dead baby. And I'm sorry, dead babies are bad things to deal with. And so you're going to probably have some emotion there. So if you have some emotion in these cases, it's okay. Now, if you're crying uncontrollably, excuse yourself, go to the car, settle down, do whatever. But if, if a tear just wells up in your eye and you wipe it away, Regain your composure. Keep talking to the parents. The parents and caregivers, they would much rather know that you're human than just a robotic machine who doesn't care. So because you're on that situ- in that situation with family, your communication with them is very, very important, okay? You've got to communicate with the family with respect. Even if you think the family did something wrong, it was a co-sleeping situation, mom went to bed drunk, and now the baby's dead. It's okay if you want to be mad at mom privately, but you can't let that show because mom may or may not have anything to do with it, but you want to get all the information you can out of the caregivers and the family now because if things change later in the investigation or through autopsy, you want to be able to go back and re-interview them. But if you make them so mad and so uncomfortable on the first day, then you'll likely never get back to talk to them to conclude your investigation, okay? So be careful, and and hear me here, hear me at this point really close. Be careful how you speak to them. How would you want to be spoken to? If somebody comes to your house and starts investigating one of your children dying, how would you want to be talked to, okay? Make the emotion, put the human side into it. Don't use police jargon, Always call the child by the child's name. Uh, Be sure that you have it right. If the child's name is Francis and they call him Frankie, then you refer to the child as Frankie. Find these things out. Be very gentle with the family at the scene, even if you think they're suspects, because being gentle with them at the scene will allow you to re-interview them later. Because number one, you haven't made them mad, but number two, they think they got by with it. 
they you don't suspect anything. So they're much more likely to want to talk to you again when they think they're doing a good job of pulling the wool over your eyes. However, you cannot let your emotions show and you can't let your thoughts show. You have to just treat them with kindness and respect the entire time. Put yourself in their shoes. Again, how would you feel? And remember, it's natural that families will feel guarded and want to say very little to police and investigators. Number one, you might be in a neighborhood or an area that doesn't like police anyway. And the fact that you're there is uncomfortable to them, maybe for other reasons, maybe just culturally. But also, you're asking a lot of questions. And even if they have done nothing wrong, they might feel like you're blaming them. So it's going to be natural for them to be a little hesitant, but help them through that. Let them know, look, I've got these questions to ask. I'm not suggesting or saying that you have done anything wrong. You want answers to for why Frankie died. I want answers as to how and why Frankie died. That's all this is. No one is suspecting you of doing anything wrong whatsoever. And I apologize if these questions are making you feel that way. And I will try to do better to help you understand that this isn't about you being a suspect or haven't done anything wrong. Again, then just continue from there, but help them feel at ease. Your demeanor and your approach will have a lot of influence at this stage. If you can't bring your demeanor down to human and outside of robotic cop, you probably don't need to be working these cases. Okay? You're going to have to have a lot of empathy and even some sympathy in these cases. Okay? Don't use, don't use terms like crime scene and things like that because you're going to, again, put that fear in them. So just be, just be a human and investigator. Also be careful how you use your tenses when it comes to the baby. Refer to the baby in present tense. Like when you're asking, uh, how much does Frankie eat? How often does Frankie sleep? Does Frankie sleep through the night? Things like that. Let the parents move to past tense when they're ready. Because every time you use a past tense and refer to the child as being dead, you're just re-reminding them the child is dead. They're not ready to give it up yet. You know, you're still on the first few hours. So use present tense when you're talking to the family. And again, using things like crime scene or the scene or the body, things like that are very uh, police jargon. They're very intimidating. You don't want to use words like that talking to a family. Because again, your goal is to return to that home and be able to talk to that family later on. And if you if you make a mad in the beginning, you're never going to get back in. And and when you when they tell you no, Frankie's never fell, Frankie never had any accidents, Frankie never this, blah, blah, blah. and then after autopsy, you see that Frankie had a lot of broken bones and a, and major head trauma. You want to be able to go back and talk to family because they told you something in the beginning that's turned out to be a lie. You want to re-interview them. But if you've made them mad in the beginning and you won't even be able to get back to re-interview them, that's going to stagnate your entire case. The trauma in the head is true. Who did it? Mom? Boyfriend? Auntie? Who did it? So your investigation needs to, you need to be able to talk to the caregivers again through your investigation. All right, let me change gears here one more time and let's talk just a few minutes on the initial scene arrival. This is when you first get there, okay? 
Some of this is police. Some of this is coroner MDI. But let's look at, at what you need to do from that perspective. So when you first get on the scene, make sure that you identify the lead investigator. If you are a detective coming on the scene, then find out who the first officer was on the scene. If you're the coroner, medical examiner, investigator getting on the scene, who is doing the investigation? Is it Sergeant so-and-so, Patrolman Smith? Is it Detective Sergeant Johnson? Who is your lead investigator? Because that's the person you need to communicate with first and let them know you're there and start on your walkthrough. Also, find out immediately who the other people are on the scene. Are paramedics still on the scene? Is family services there already? Are there child care providers there? Who else is on the scene? Then, of course, explain your role to everyone. Let them know why you're there. If the scene is safe, meaning, you know, there's no hazards for you, then ask to go in and see the scene. Now, a word of caution here. When it comes to these initial scene investigations, I want to remind you there's two ways that these scenes get compromised. One is we don't get notified or the notification is very delayed, meaning that the child had a breathing problem. EMS took him to the hospital. Then from there, they got airlifted to another hospital and they died. Now, most state laws have a remand requirement that it goes back to the point of origin. But if that, if that does happen, then that can be a delay of several hours or days. Whatever crime scene you had at home is gone four days later because the baby's been on life support for four days at a major trauma hospital. Or you don't get notified at all, and that has happened as well. So, again, that compromises these scenes. And then another thing is if a child is dead at the scene and EMS is hauling it, and I've talked to EMS all over the country, and it's almost impossible to get an EMS paramedic person not to haul a dead baby, even if they're in full rigor. They just want to put on a show for the parents. And I'm sorry, but that's what they do. So this baby is in full rigor, no way coming back, and they still haul it. So by doing that, the first responding officer, rather than securing the scene where the dead baby is at, and the officer knows the baby's dead, follows the baby to the hospital. By doing that, though, then the scene back home is compromised, okay? So think about those things. And something else to keep in mind, it, unlike any other death investigation, when the, when the decedent is an infant, 99% of the time they're moved from their point of discovery. Rarely do we have a situation where we find grandpa dead in his bed and then somebody scoops him up and comes running down the hall that grandpa's not breathing in to call 911. But in an infant death, it's 999 million percent that that's going to happen, right? So where we may get there if the baby's still on the scene, and that's a big if, it may be on the couch with mom, but it died in the bedroom down the hall. Or it died in the bedroom down the hall, EMS found it on the couch with mom, and it's now 30 miles away at the local hospital. So there's a lot of movement in this decedent that doesn't happen with adults. Okay, but when you first get there, you need to know where the child was found. Okay, again, sometimes there's two scenes, sometimes there's three. But where was a child found initially? Was he in his bed? Was he out in the back porch? Was he down by the river? Was he floating in the pond? Where was a child found? And if he was taken to the hospital, what hospital was he taken to? Both scenes need to be secured and the, and the dead baby protected 
because that is the most important piece of evidence is the dead baby. And we want to make sure any evidence on or about that baby is protected wherever he's at. Okay. So the initial walkthrough. Again, you locate your first response, the initial first responding officer and the lead investigator. You want to talk to both of them to what they've seen and know already. Again, where was the infant first discovered dead or unresponsive? Also determine where he was last known alive. Now, you're going to want some of this in reconstruction later, but currently we want to know where he was found unresponsive, where was a child when he was last known alive, and where was a child placed in between. So we know he was alive at 2 a.m. When dad got home from work, he went in and checked on the child and the child was in the bed and was alive. He was found the next morning in his bed unresponsive or maybe he was found in mom and dad's bed unresponsive. Dad found him alive in his own crib and then picked him up and because he was awake and moved him to his bed and that's where the baby died. So where was he, where was he last known alive and where was he found dead? Identify any visible physical evidence, anything very visible or fragile. A little bit of blood on the crib, some vomit on some clothing, or you know something about the, where the baby was found that doesn't look right, medications present, things like that. Anything that could be easily moved or destroyed, like a drop of blood or mucus or a wet stain on the crib mattress cover. That's important, and that's going to dry up and go away. Do you see it? Is it there? Can you photograph it and seize that? Document and photograph all that evidence immediately. You can, you, we still want to collect it, but make sure it's photographed immediately. Look around at the living conditions. Is this a hoarder house? Is there a lot of exposed outlets? Is there a lot of insects like roaches and things? Is there dog and cat poop all over the floor? Or is this a very, very clean, sterile house? But what are the living conditions? Are there animals there? Are there dogs and cats, things like that, living in the house? What about the heating and cooling system in the, in the whole house and in the baby's room? That can come into play with hypothermia or hypothermia. And locate the decedent as soon as possible and make sure you can view the decedent and look for uh, any marks, things like that, on the body, doing a body exam. Now, as I kind of mentioned earlier, we're talking about the scene, but I kind of mentioned this earlier. You have to get along. Cooperation is key. And when you're on these scenes, you have the police agencies, the coroner agency, paramedics may still be there, uh, but there's a, there could be a lot of hospital if you're at the hospital. A lot of people may be involved in this, and it's important that you all get along. Any, again, these are strained. The investigations are strained. It strains us mentally. We have to deal with, with parents that are just tore up. And because of that, Again, it can get overwhelming emotionally. And when these things happen, then we can let our egos get in the way because we're in the spotlight. It's going to be a big deal in the community. And we want to make sure that we're in charge or I'm in charge. No, I'm not in charge. You're in charge. And then it can become a disaster very quickly. So one thing to keep in mind here as we start closing this up, do not rush these scenes. Do not rush them. They should take a long time and it's going to be your emotions and your desire to get out of the situation to rush the scene. Okay. Don't get in a hurry. Being in a hurry is what causes mistakes and that's when things are missed. So don't rush them. Okay. There's no reason to rush any death scene ever. 
but especially when it comes to an infant. They should take a long time, and they will take a long time. Not only at the scene, when it comes to collecting the right evidence, photographing, documenting, talking to the parents, doing scene reenactments, collecting last known food, things like that. It's going to take several hours, possibly, but that's okay. You only get one chance at your first chance. Everything after that can be called into question in court. It isn't good evidence. And so it muddies it up and it really causes problems in your investigation. So if you're at the scene and it takes you nine hours to process that scene and talk to the parents and do the reenactment and do everything you got to do, if it really does take that long, then I don't mean just stretch it out and just long lags of time not being done. But if it takes that long to investigate it and to collect things and to, to talk to parents, then it just does. And if you're by yourself, it's probably going to take a lot longer. You know, if you had somebody that could be interviewing the parents with the study form while somebody else collected the evidence and then, you know, you could come together and make sure you got everything, things like that. But when you're by yourself, like happens sometimes, it can take a long time. So, again, don't rush these scenes. Just let them play out and you'll get the answers you need as they uh, as they surface. Okay, but when you rush it, then you miss stuff that's a lot of times you can't go back and get later. All right, we're going to end there for today. Next week, we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about the scene and, and some evidence and things like that. And we'll have some other people this month coming in talking about the, the actual investigation side. So we had a lot going on in the month of February about infant and child death. And remember, if there's anything I can do for you, let me know. If you have a training you want me to speak at, I will be glad to. If you want to bring me in virtually, that has become a very popular thing where I stay in Missouri and I teach your group wherever you're at for up to four hours and everybody gets full credit for it, but you don't have to travel. I don't have to travel and it's very cost effective and for everyone. So think about that. But if I can do anything, if any of the instructors at this academy can do anything, please reach out and let us know. Our whole goal is to help you because what we do matters. What I do matters in the training side and what you do to the families matters. What we do matters. Okay. And remember, find a way to bless your fellow man. Bless somebody in your work environment. Bless somebody at home. And above all, until next week, everybody, be safe. Thanks for listening to Coroner Talk, a DSPN media production. Visit our website at coronertalk.com. And be sure to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash coroner training. 3617-1024 scene on route to morgue.